Hi, I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Bhatia Unger-Sargon. And this is Newsweek's The Debate. We are discussing today, Badia, an issue that we've already discussed, but it is so monumentally important. It is so seizing the national narrative. It is so filling up your Twitter feeds, your cable news, your newspapers, your iPhone alerts, that we couldn't resist the urge to cover it again. Uh, so we're covering critical race theory, uh, the issue of all issues right now. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about, just real quick, who we're going to hear from today. Yeah, we're going to hear from two people who I have mad respect for, and I am so excited to see them pitted against each other because they're both black, they're both from the South, and they have very different views about critical race theory from within that community. And so uh, I am so, so thrilled that Isaac J. Bailey is joining us. He's an award-winning journalist. He's a professor of public policy at Davidson College, and he wrote a book that really, really rocked my world. It's called My Brother Moochie, Regaining Dignity in the Face of Crime, Poverty, and Racism in the American South. And we also have Barrington Martin II, who is a former congressional candidate for the 5th District of Georgia. He's the founder of the United Alliance PAC, and he wrote an amazing op-ed for us at Newsweek about a lot of pushback from black parents about critical race theory in their schools. And I'm just so excited to see them go against each other and hear whether there's anything that they have in common or if it's all going to be complete disagreement. Well, there's one thing that we've picked up on from this podcast. It's that guests who come into a discussion often thinking they disagree vociferously and are at, you know, 180 degree polar opposite ends of one another, end up having a lot more Venn diagram overlap in common. Kind of like you and me, Josh. Yes, I, I think that's accurate. Um, you know, before we kind of take it to a break and come back on the other side, um, you know, we, we cover this topic, Badia, you and I are obviously uh, editors, writers uh, by training. We, we cover this topic all the time. Um, at Newsweek. Um, so I'm kind of just wondering uh, just how your thoughts have uh, maybe changed, evolved since we last did this podcast. Uh, you know, we, we had the podcast on this recently. I mean, there's been so much action at the state level, at the national level on this issue since then. Have you had any kind of new insights or new developments, any changes in your thinking since then? Well, uh, as with all culture wars, this one has gotten stupider as it has gotten more and more, uh, you know, taking up all of the all of the air in the room and all of our attention. So the two sides have gotten uh, further and further entrenched. Uh, the right keeps writing these ridiculous bills trying to get the government to intervene in uh, school curriculum in a way that I think is completely uh, uh, unconstitutional. And then the left, of course, is is doubling down on this moral panic around race that I think is deeply problematic. Um, so that that's kind of where I see, uh, see see the situation. What about you? Well, I strongly disagree, of course, on this on, on the state bans and think they're not only constitutional and legal, but arguably required under Title VI. But that's a whole nother story for another day. And for the sake of time, and for the sake of not burning off the listener's ear, you didn't come to hear me pontificate. You heard to he you came to hear Isaac Bailey and Barrington Marm II. So we're going to take it to a quick break. On the other side, you're going to hear from those two gentlemen. They are going to talk about where they agree, where they disagree, and where everything else happens on critical race theory. This is the debate and Newsweek podcast. And just a note to our listeners, um, Isaac speaks with a bit of a stutter. He will address that actually in the debate. Uh, it comes up in the way that he talks about race and the way he thinks about race. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. So, Badia, we are thrilled to, uh, I guess, doing our first repeat topic, but it's a very worthy topic to repeat. So we're doing critical race theory once again. So why don't you tell us about who we're going to have debate today's topic? 
We really could not be more thrilled with today's guests. Uh, we are so, so delighted to have Isaac J. Bailey, an award-winning journalist and a professor of public policy at Davidson College. He's also the author of an incredible book that everyone should buy and everyone should read. It's called My Brother Moochie, Regaining Dignity in the Face of Crime, Poverty, and Racism in the American South. It changed my life, changed my views. Read that book. Um, and we are also totally thrilled to have Barrington Martin II, a former congressional candidate for the 5th District of Georgia and the founder of United Alliance PAC. We're just so excited to have you both here to talk about critical race theory, a topic that is back in the news. So, Josh, why don't you ask our guests the first question? Yeah, so thank you guys both so much for joining us. So let's kick it off this way here. So half of this debate, and it really is kind of the national debate taking us all by storm these days, it seems, is kind of a semantical dispute, just uh, defining first what we're even talking about. So let's kick it off with a two-pronged question. Isaac, we'll start with you, and then Barrington, you can respond to that. Let's have you first define what, quote, critical race theory, unquote, even is, um, and then kind of explain what you think um, all the fuss is about, basically. I mean, should these statewide bans be enacted, or are these just dramatic overreaches? It is something very specific. I mean, at least I actually try to deal with how sort of uh, my race affects like even neutral seeming laws. Like that is what it actually is. And yet over like the past year or so, it has become so many other things that people don't like about how people talk about race, essentially. It is important, at least to like actually try to like actually define these terms. If you, for instance, don't sort of like actually like the book White uh, Fragility, for instance. But I mean, yes, and then to like actually just say that like you don't like that book, and then like also like explain why I should try to lump that into like this whole CRT label. Barrington, by contrast, how would you go ahead and define critical race theory, and how does your own definition of it impact your stance on the, on this issue? Critical race theory is basically how I learned it in grad school is that it is a legal framework or basically an ideology that sets the president that states that the systems of America or, um, you know, any system within America is, is viewed through a racial lens, or you want to basically uh, identify racial issues through these systems. But more so than anything, in my opinion, on a lamest terms, is just basically looking at American systems and specifically American jurisprudence through a racial lens. And I think that in understanding that, that kind of formulates my opinions or my or my thoughts um, about CRT, especially living in 2021, when, when I feel and also the data would also prove that we're living in arguably or unarguably, excuse me, the best time there is to live in society with it with 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 race or involving race so to speak so we're definitely going to want to hear from both of you about how you see the state of race and racism in america in 2021 but barrington just sticking with you for a minute people pushing back against critical race theory are often dismissed as you know using republican talking points or you know you'll see people saying oh these these are just white parents who don't want their children to learn about our nation's ugly racist past but it's more complicated than that isn't it you wrote this great piece for us at newsweek called listen to black parents furious with critical race theory it's a great piece and i'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about this pushback against critical race theory from within the black community um, if you're seeing that, if you see your views as representative, tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. I, I absolutely see my views as representative of that because what I feel that is happening is through CRT and through people who are not even 
adequately educated in CRT, they're going to pigeonhole our children into believing that their skin tone is basically um, a, a positive or a hindrance to their progress. And so basically with CRT and, and, and really analyzing and viewing things through a race first or race-based perspective, you're gonna teach um, black children that they are the oppressed and they're gonna always be oppressed no matter what. And, and on the other side of the corner, you're gonna teach white children that they are the oppressors and they're gonna always be the oppressors all because of the color of their skins. And I think that in, in teaching such uh, complex concepts or ideologies to children at a small age, what you're gonna end up doing is um, bringing them some type of resentment towards themselves or towards each other. And I personally feel that um, and by doing this, you're going to create racial tensions higher than they've possibly ever been since we've seen since the 60s. And I think that this is why um, teaching such concepts like this to uh, young adolescents or children is a dangerous precedent to set. So Isaac, a lot to respond to there. What are your thoughts? Yeah, like one that like I sort of actually don't know all these people like who are supposedly sort of like actually trying to frame like this issue that way, like actually for our kids. Like, I don't know like any person really like who is like actually trying to actually divide kids that way. We absolutely like actually deal with the issue of racism and white privilege, et cetera. But like, we have never told our kids that that is the only thing or the most important thing. And also that we have actually never ever sort of actually told them that they are the oppressed forever and ever, even when it came to my parents sort of actually talking to us about race, for instance, they sort of actually taught us that we sort of actually needed to work harder, period, like bottom line, case closed, at least like actually when it came to racism, it was real and also it actually like could be overcome. So there, so, so there's an, an agreement there, right? So Isaac, you would, you, would you be opposed to children being taught to, to black children being taught that they are part of an oppressed class and white children being taught that they are part of an oppressor class. Is that something you would oppose? Yes, for sure. If you like actually try to study white privilege, for instance, mm -hmm. in any kind of fashion, suddenly when you sort of like are sort of actually painted, like you are sort of actually trying to be divisive, like you are sort of actually trying to make white kids uh, um, guilty, et cetera, like all those kind of things. And also the fact that is not true. Finally, if I had that type of mindset, like in terms of that, I am the always oppressed, et cetera, I can I guarantee you that like I thought actually would not be successful today. I'm like, why in the world would I try to teach black kids like in order to like actually feel always oppressed and also to like actually think that sort of like racism like actually cannot be overcome? Yes, like it doesn't make any sense. So Barrington, we'd love to kind of pick it off right there, actually. So I, I, I would be curious kind of just how you respond to that more generally. But, you know, specifically here, um, it's, it's, it sounds like we uh, frankly agree on a lot more than I thought we would. Um, it's as far as kind of the oppressed oppressor dichotomy. Um, you know, I'm a lawyer by training, so I tend to think about constitutional law a lot. And, you know, Justice Clarence Thomas, whenever he writes on race, a, a frequent theme that he comes back to um, is how, you know, affirmative action policies, things of that nature, which we're not going to talk about today. That's a separate discussion, obviously. But he right. he, he, he tends to think about kind of uh, the badge of inferiority is kind of like the basic framing that he does. So I, I'm curious if that badge of inferiority 
colors how you approach critical race theory as far as this kind of oppressor-oppressed dichotomy. Okay, so I want to push back on a specific thing um, that the gentleman stated, because I think that we have to take into account that we have totally overused words and even watered down the, the definition of words, especially in, in this society, currently speaking. The reason I'm saying this is because I reject terms like white supremacy. I reject terms like white privilege, because when you utilize these terms, you're basically saying um, to support the critical race theory argument of the oppressor and the oppressed, because when you use those type of terms, then you, t you tell um, especially younger adolescents who are unable to conceptualize specific type of ideologies, you tell them that because they're white, that they have a supremacy, or you tell them because they're white, they have a privilege when essentially there are white people who would totally dismiss the notion of being um, supreme or even being privileged based on um, whether it's their financial status or their economic status. And I just think that when we continuously use these types of terminologies or phrases, we're subconsciously putting in the minds of the masses that there is some type of advantage that people have in this society based on their skin color. Now, I will never uh, reject the idea that this may not have been the case in the past from a law perspective or even from a societal perspective, but in 2021, I feel that we are have been at least the closest that we've been to those common tenets that have been put forth by our, our forefathers. And I just think that it's, it's time for us now as a country, as a society to re reject these terms that we've been using for so long that really possess no meaning when you ask people to break down the definitions of it. So I think that when you would utilize terms like that, you continuously reemphasize the oppressor as well as the oppressed um, a dichotomy of the critical race theory um, our ideology. So we have to take a quick break, but we are going to be right back. This is The Debate, a podcast from Newsweek, and stay tuned. We're talking critical race theory with Isaac Bailey and Barrington Martin II. Welcome back to The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. So actually, Barrington, I want to go back to you just real quick here, because you're saying that you, you kind of reject the term white supremacy, uh, at least as it applies to kind of the current situation in the United States. I'm wondering if you would also reject a slightly less charged term, um, admittedly still a controversial term, but less charged. I'm wondering if you think that the country is currently systemically racist as it's comprised, or if, or if you would also reject that label. I, re I reject that automatically. See, we, I feel like we, and I, I wanted to touch back on your Clarence Thomas piece as well. I feel like we have a tendency to think, to look at disparities and, to, and statistics with certain metrics and automatically state that these disparities are due to racism when essentially they're not. And you can think, you can look at the crime rates, you can look at um, poverty rates, you can even look at uh, the rates of fathers being in the home in which, you know, these numbers like these have been increasing amongst all races over the last decade or so. And so I think that um, when, we, when we speak about things like systemic racism, there is, I, haven't, I have not had any recent example, modern example of the last five years or any systems in place that look to um, subjugate a specific type of group or specific group essentially, um, not essentially, but a specific group outside of something like affirmative action or outside of um, collegiate intake programs where you, where they have been basically Xing out the Asian American children who score higher than other races of children. Outside of that, I don't feel like there's any system 
within America that has that's been that's implemented today, as in right now, that is subjugating a specific people based on race. So Isaac, I, a lot Isaac, there. I imagine to... that you probably disagree with that at least to an extent, right? I mean, uh, yes. or, okay. Do yeah. you mind elaborating for us? Sure. One of the great things about something like CRT, for instance, and also the Voting Rights Act, for instance, they actually take into account disparate impact, like on sort of that different races, for instance. Why that is so important, if like the only thing that you hang your hat on is some kind of absolutely that purposeful, like in order to like tear down black people, et cetera. And also that this is absolutely that clear, like in terms of the intent, like actually from that folks, like who say, yes, that we are trying to hurt black people as the only standard, like you will like actually never ever actually be able to sort of like root out like all of these problems that we've had literally for decades and decades and decades. I'm like white privilege, for instance. Well, like this is something like that, like I can tell you guys, you sort of actually have something that I sort of actually call like a sort of uh, like fluency in terms of that privilege. I mean, at least for me, uh, um, like as a stutterer, I mean, like in a world which is sort of actually built on sort of like fluency, et cetera, yes, yeah, so then that like you guys like actually have like this massive advantage over me, at least like in these situations. And yet though, like, I am not trying to say that like in order to make you feel guilty about your fluency. Like I am not trying to make you feel bad about your fluency. And also that I am not trying to say that I am less than uh, um, simply because I stutter. And yet though, as soon as we sort of actually apply that clear logic, like actually when it comes to race in a country which was like actually founded with race-based chattel slavery, and yet if I say that clearly in this country that race has like actually offered some people more advantages like actually based on race, yes, and then that suddenly that is like actually taken like as like this massive offense. And like that is the part that I that push back on a lot. So but let me push back a little bit, Isaac. Do you, would is there any form of disparate outcome? that you could see as not stemming from racism. Is is that is that of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Like and yes, like and also that uh um like that, like that is why I sort of actually disagree with that Kendi really like on that like who actually sort of actually makes this this binary. Yes. And yet I sort of actually hear that more and more and more people who sort of like are kind of push this idea that like almost no sort of like racial disparities today are sort of like actually about racism. And I sort of absolutely reject that as well. But isn't Kendi winning? Like, so you're you're saying to us, there's a version of critical race theory that is not Kendiism, that is not that right. extreme, that is more right. reasonable, that is something we're finding a lot of common ground on. But in terms right. of the culture war, Isaac, in terms of where things are going in America, don't you feel that the extremes are pulling the conversation in that direction, or you don't see it that way? My sort of biggest frustration about this is that like, even as I try to explain these things to people, try to like, actually get to this nuance, oftentimes that even my sort of words are sort of actually distorted, like and sort of actually said, well, then like that means that he is CRT, like that means that he hates white people, that means that he is un-American. That kind of environment, it is really difficult like in order to like, actually be able to like, actually have sensible dialogue about this. And that's my major frustration here. 
yeah, we're, and we're, we're, I feel that we are, you know, fixing that here, even as we all speak to each other. Barrington, let me ask you something about the extremes on your side of this. You know, these, these laws have been coming out that are seeking to use government uh, intervention to ban critical race theory from schools. And I'm wondering if you agree with those or if those are sort of an extreme version of your side. And, and just to take, if you don't agree with them, I mean, how do you stop your side, which is opposed to critical race theory, from moving into its extreme version? It's horrible. I, I think it's horrible wholeheartedly. I don't think that any any type of substantial knowledge or knowledge that's important to, I would say, create an entire picture of society of what's going on should ever be cut out of school. I just don't believe that CRT as um, a framework should be taught when, until children get to a certain age to where they're able to conceptualize um, these ideologies properly without, you know, going as far as the extremists on both sides. So this is why I said in my article, I felt that the GOP was handling this wrong. You don't essentially create a law stating what shouldn't be taught. What you should do is have the proper, the proper, um, teachings in the school and to break things down, to give all the nuances and the intricate details that need to be given. You never say, oh, this this should not be taught at all, because all that does, in my opinion, is going to create a lot of curiosity behind it. And when it creates the curiosity behind it, you're going to get a child, a teenager or a teacher themselves who, who are not versed in such material to read material that is going to play into their own biases. And in turn, you're going to create another extreme. And that's, that's not what we're trying to get here what we're trying to get here is to, in my opinion is a middle ground and understanding of where we are today where we once were and where we're trying to go and i think that if we can you know find middle ground in that then you know all parties should be satisfied in my opinion so let me push back on that a little bit here um so education and that's what really we're talking about here about these bands are at the elementary high school level university level depends on the state obviously um really is a state issue. The federal government has very little involvement. The Department of Education obviously exists. But setting school curricula is kind of a very historically and traditionally state function. Um, and it just seems intuitive and obvious to me um, that, you know, a, a state has a, a state, not, the, not necessarily the federal government, the state has, has a legitimate role in at least setting kind of the outer contours of what its curriculum wants to look like. So, for example, of course, um, you know, there's been all sorts of Supreme Court cases pertaining to school prayer and teaching religion in schools and all that. Um, but, you know, a, a, a kind of a left leaning, more secular state would surely be well within its uh, wheelhouse. It would, be, it would be totally legitimate, I think, for it to say that uh, we are not going to teach creationism um, in science class, philosophy class or, or whatnot. Um, similarly, you know, if we're talking about World War II, um, it would seem to me that it would be wholly legitimate for a state to say um, we will not teach Holocaust denialism. That's not a legitimate viewpoint, and therefore we're going to outlaw it. So it seems to me like this is something that is happening, has been happening. So there's something then that makes this a little different. So is it not illegitimate enough? It's not kind of, you know, it's obviously not the level of Holocaust denial, to be clear, but like, is it, it's not illegitimate enough to be banned under the force of law? Is that kind of where we're trying to fine tune a distinction here? This is what I feel about in that, in that respect. I think the me the media drives narratives in our country, right? And I'm saying this because over the last three, two to three years, maybe I'll even go back as four to say that the media has been been driving a lot of race, racial narratives. And I'm saying this because as these racial narratives continue to grow, or the the overall aura or or concern about race continues to grow, 
you have concepts like CRT that comes up that people, you know, on the opposing side feel like, well, maybe, you know, we could make race relations a little bit better if we teach this, but this is why I feel that CRT isn't a mechanism to do that. When essentially like in this country right now, I feel like people are finding problems or creating problems that aren't even there. One of these problems has to do deal with racism or in race itself as an ideology. And I think that because we have been, we have been so um, emotionally manipulated by media in regards to race, this is why our attention and our focus has been directed to um, ideologies like CRT, in my opinion. You're obviously critical of critical race theory, no pun intended there, obviously, but uh, yes. reluctant to use the state, um, the, the force of law to, to proscribe it. So what does that look like? I, I mean, is it, is it just kind of like the proverbial kind of public square uh, changing hearts and minds, man to man, woman to woman approach? Is that what you have in mind? I think I think so. I think that we just need to have a, a honest conversation in, in regards to race, more honest than we've had before. And, you know, just just stop, you know, being politically correct around it. Like you don't have to disrespect anybody. We just need to really be honest about where we are at a country right now in regards to the racial issues and not attempt to fix it by um, instilling ideologies or frameworks that kids aren't able to even conceptualize at this time. For me, like these are the state actually shape these are the outer contours. Yes, that makes sense. But talk about actually going directly after a journalistic project like 1619 Project, going directly after CRT is not the outer contours. Right now, I can actually teach at least about denial of like the Holocaust, for instance. When it comes to any good educational system, it is how it is taught, not that it is taught. In these cases, what these laws and like these lawmakers are absolutely saying absolutely clearly that they are trying to say that we should not even talk about these things in classrooms. I mean, at least for me, like that is insane. What sort that really, really scares me right now? It's like real chill in classrooms right now, like from the teachers that I know and also from me who actually might sort of actually shy away like from like all of these important issues overall, they sort of actually don't want to cross over these sort of like new lines being drawn. That is not good for education in this country. It is simply not. So it's so interesting, Isaac, you bring this point of view that I think we often don't hear about. So you're in the South. And so yeah. and, and, you know, so much of the Twitter discourse is, is created sort of in New York and in D.C., right. where the chilling effect that we hear about is coming from these elite universities where students feel like they can't say, oh, I don't like critical race theory, or they'll be they'll face, you know, social sanctions. And you're saying that where you live in the South, teachers are afraid to bring up, you know, issues like, you know, maybe even issues from American history, because they're worried about state censure, because this has become a culture war. Is that accurate? Yes. What is I like, really, really frustrating about this, too, I mean, at least before, like all of this moral panic is what I like, actually, would call it is the fact that like all of these kinds of discussions in classrooms were actually very nuanced, mm -hmm. were actually very layered and often uncomfortable. Kind of like in these classrooms, which is a good and healthy thing for our educational system. And yet now with this push, that is sort of like actually sort of actually happening less now. 
And so like that is the part that like, actually scares me. If there were like, laws like actually by liberals, which that actually said you can no longer like actually say that our founding fathers were good people simply because like they were slave owners. Like there actually would be riots by conservatives and also sort of like libertarians on that. And yet though, on this other end, they are embracing these laws. And I don't think that makes a whole lot of sense. All right, so let's take it to a quick break here. Um, Barrington, I have a question for you on the other side though, but uh, we will be right back. Listen to Isaac Bailey and Barrington Mar in the second. This is The Debate, a podcast from Newsweek. Welcome back to The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. Barrington, question for you here. I kind of want to go back to what we talked about earlier on the show. Badia was asking you about uh, what you're seeing uh, in the in the black community as far as backlash against critical race theory here. Um, it seems to me like we've reached a potential boiling point, frankly, in, in this discussion nationally. And I, I've actually been saying this for for months. I mean, you know, as soon as kind of Chris Rufo started doing these kind of investigating reportings and we, you know, we heard like in San Diego's uh, someone accusing, uh, you know, white children of spirit murdering black children and all of this, frankly, just crazy stuff. It's, it, it seemed to me that if this was really going to take off, that there would be a boiling point and there would be kind of a point at which pushback was inevitable. Um, so uh, just talking like nationally, do you think that we are at the point where the overstep has been so dramatic that the pushback is only going to get more intense? I think so. I don't think we're at the boiling point, but I think it can be more intense. And the reason I said this is because people are not understanding the real racism that is occurring right now in this country. Let's take, for example, the canceling of all of these um what do you call it, gifted programs for children based on the fact that there's a discrepancy in, in the number of children based on demographic. Just because, again, that there are statistics, for example, using the gifted programs to be, for example, there's a, a low amount of kids, I think this was in New York, that were in the gifted programs. And so instead of, you know, figuring out why these Black children or the Black children weren't able or, or scoring high up enough marks to be in these gifted programs, the state or the city specifically decided to say, hey, we're gonna cut out the gifted programs. And all that does is hurt the black children, the minimal amount of black children who have scored high enough to be in these programs. And so I'm saying this because it's important to note that yes, we have a a, a past that has been, you know, totally um, entrenched within like racial ideas, but ideals, excuse me, but that has been long gone for now in 2021. And I just think that it's, it's important for us to really understand the type of ideologies that we plan to inflict on our kids, because I feel like instead of taking forward, taking steps forward, we're taking steps backward, but we're not even realizing it because we're so emotionally um, driven by what we see in the media. Barrington, I wonder if you could tell us like a little bit more about what you're seeing in your community around these conversations. What are we missing? You know, us in the north, um, like in the national media, what is what are what can we not see that you're seeing, you know, where you're sitting um, about how these conversations are um, being held within the black community in black families? Um, how is this coming across and, and what are people talking about? In my opinion, you're essentially telling black people that because they're black, they're going to always be in this perpetual, perpetual state of dread. You're not you're not being honest 
and not you guys specifically, but when I look at media, when I look at news, we're, we're not being honest and having honest conversations in regards to race, in regards to many of the things that happen in society. For example, in my, in my mind, black people can't even fail in peace. When I say that, I mean that anytime a black person does something, anytime a black man specifically does something, it's, it's, it's always an excuse that comes up as to why that he chose this life for himself or why that he lives in, in the state that he lives. Everybody else gets to fail in peace. Everybody else messes up and they just messed up. It is what it is. We treat them like adults. But for whatever reason, we have this, this bigotry of low expectations for black people as a collective. And essentially what happens is, is that black people themselves um, put themselves within this, this, this note of self-pity that it's been hard to escape because anytime you see energy or, or hear news of yourself and it's never in the best light, it's, it's kind of easy for you for, for you on a psychological basis to have this existential dread for yourself. And I think that we just have to have honest, honest conversations about why things are the way that they are and just be realistic as to the progress that we want to make. Isaac, I actually would love to get your response to that. And I'm actually really happy that Barrington mentioned the phrase bigotry of low expectations in particular. Um, you know, I think back to the recent debate over Georgia's uh, voting bill. Um, and, you know, uh, obviously photo ID was a bit was a big part of that bill. Um, and, you know, I mean, personally, just put my own card on the table here. I, I think the notion that a photo ID is 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 racist is, is, is a little crazy, to be honest with you. So I, I, I took that and, you know, I, I, I tweet something along the following lines. I said, you know, um, uh, the, the argument that that black people in Georgia cannot get a photo ID is just the soft bigotry of low expectations all over again. And then Jason Whitlock, kind of the prominent sports commentator, quote and he's black just for context. He, he quote tweeted me and he said, "It's not soft bigotry; it's just bigotry." Um, and you know, I, we could hold aside the semantics there. That's not really what I'm getting at. I, I'm just kind of curious if you're um, sympathetic here to just this broader argument that um, we're kind of um, uh, infantilizing that we're that we're kind of raising a generation of people who are just taught. Um, that the, the deck is so stacked against us that they will be perpetual victims and can never kind of achieve life outcomes on their own? No. If you actually look at the folks who actually study these issues in depth, the like Brennan Center, for instance, like hands on actually look at all of these laws and also the effects of these laws. And it has been shown time and time and time again that there is a real racial effect to them. That's what actually was like this court case like in that federal court in North Carolina, that court actually said that it actually was designed to actually target black voters. All of these things are real. That like actually does not mean that that is going to stop somebody like me from voting or Barrington from voting or most black voters from voting. No, that is not the case. And yet once we like actually delve into these policies and their real effect in real life, there are sort of like real problems. Voter ID laws, for instance, at least in a vacuum by themselves, they seem absolutely benign. It's like commonsensical, et cetera. And yet, though, if you actually look at the laws, like at least in which they are placed, that is where all of these issues really come up. So uh, one final question for you both. Uh, this has been such an amazing conversation, and we're so grateful to you. Um, I'm shocked to find out how much you agree about, although also not, because we often find that people uh, who disagree on things very strongly have a lot of common ground. Um, I wonder if you could each tell us, what is the biggest problem facing America today, facing your community, 
And what are some things that you think would fix them? Or what are the things we should be looking to, uh, to, to fix them? So let's start with you, Barrington. Oh, man, that, that's a great question. Because I, I, can, I can go on for days, and I know we don't have that much time here. But I think the ultimate problem boils down to uh, self-love and a sense of self-worth. I feel this way because I think that if you have a certain sense of integrity, self-respect, and self-love for yourself, then you will treat the next person around you, even if they're a complete stranger, the same way um, that you identify yourself. And then specifically with the Black community, I think that that's one of the key aspects of or the foundations of many of the problems that you see within the black community, whether in regards to economic status, something like crime specifically, is that I feel like a lot of times these these people feel or don't feel the the, the self-love that they have for themselves. So they are, un, are unable, excuse me, to be uh, empathetic or compassionate to the next person, because at the end of the day, I feel that you have to start with yourself first. And you start with yourself, you find someone like-minded like you, you build a family. Good families build good communities. Good communities build even a bigger community and on so and so forth until we get to a, a greater nation. Wow, that's beautiful. Isaac? We have something actually Sodak bought into these myths about self-made men and self-made women and individuals only, etc. I am not a self-made man. Like I have worked hard, yes. Like I've tried to make good decisions, yes. I've tried to do like all of those things that everybody said we're supposed to do. Of course, yes me, but I also needed help. I also needed help actually from like other black people and white people, from family members, from strangers, and also from systems like food stamps, like Pell Grants, like all those other things. Yes, and then so like for me, I mean, like if we can like actually sort of actually get more people at least to like actually be honest at least about our sort of complexity like as our human beings as individuals and also a member of a group yes and then i think that we sort of actually would be much better for it that was fantastic thank you thank you so much to both of you guys for joining us today uh those were wonderful wonderful closing answers frankly the entire discussion was was fantastic so isaac bailey and barrington martin the second thank you so much for joining body and i on newsweek's the debate podcast thank you very much this is the debate and newsweek podcast we encourage you to listen everywhere you get your podcasts stitcher spotify art 19 all available platforms and of course leave us five stars we would be very grateful leave your candid but hopefully not too candid review and we will see you next week see you next time <laughs>